You've been harmed by someone. You need to get back from them. It's an issue of, of this issue of justice. Your rights have been violated. So you will, you will respond to them in, in just way or in right way they, as they have responded to you. But here's what Jesus said. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now, right away, we're just slammed back in our seats. Now, wait a minute. That's not right. If someone is evil, we are to resist him. Jesus, what are you saying? I hope you look at it and say that because it ought to bring that kind of response. Wait a minute. I mean, this is an evil world. We're just going to let evil people trample over us? Evil people trample through the church? Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 38 through 42, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, as we continue on and Sermon on the Mount, and in fact, come to one of the perhaps most misunderstood passages in the Sermon on the Mount, misapplied maybe, and somewhat confusing. So let's read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Please be seated. Have you ever felt like the world is out to get you? You woke up in the morning and you're sure that the system is against you, that people just want to use you for their advantage. I have news for you this morning. You are absolutely right. The world is out to get you. People are out to use you. In fact, the whole world system is designed to take you down. And so, really, we literally come out of the womb defending ourselves, standing up for our rights, and protecting our property. Most of our interactions with others, both publicly and privately, involve some form of self-protection. Why not? As I said, we feel like the world's out to get us, and for the most part, it is. So our responses when it comes to our self-defense, our self-protection, our desire to bring our own justice, these make perfect sense if we are our only provider and defender. But a citizen of the kingdom is able to have an entirely different response to an evil, unjust, and demanding world Because we have a provider, we have a defender who is infinitely powerful, just, loving, graceful, wise, and good. Our trust in him enables us to respond to the demands of the world with grace, goodness, self-sacrifice, and selflessness. 
And so what we'll see this morning is that only when we fully commit ourselves to the justice, holiness, love, and grace of God do we have the resources necessary to respond to personal affront and oppression with joyful, purposeful sacrifice. Again, only when we fully commit ourselves to the justice, holiness, love, and grace of God do we have the resources necessary to respond to personal affront and oppression with joyful, purposeful sacrifice perhaps in an even more simple sentence, when we have faith that God is our defender, we can turn the other cheek. Well, let's remember where we are in, in, our, in our text, in our sermon. Jesus began with the, with the qualities, the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom, essentially characteristics necessary to get into it that God himself produces as he regenerates our heart, changes us through the word of God. Then he moved on to a discussion of what it means to live within the kingdom, really the standards of righteousness necessary and he said that our righteousness for those who are in the kingdom must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he talked about murder and related it to anger. He talked about adultery and related it to lust within the heart. He talked about divorce and discussed the fact that it's not simply a matter of certificates and legal proceedings. It's a matter of faithfulness. It's a matter of covenant commitment to the person that we promised that we would live with for our entire lives. And then last week we talked about vows and truth that any vow we make, any promise is made in the eyes, in the presence of a holy God, and he expects that we will live out our vows, we will fulfill them. And we broaden that out to really consider the nature of every word that we say, that we are held accountable for it, that there is no word that we will not answer for on the day of judgment. There are no random, idle words. God knows them all, hears them all, and judges them all. And of course, that's not only the words that come out of our mouth, it's also the words that we think. Every thought that comes into our mind, God makes a judgment on. And so should we. There's the issue. You see, the re- this is the reason Jesus is giving the sermon. We don't just live our lives just plowing through, going, wow, I'm convicted by that, or wow, I need to change that. We have to begin to think through everything we think. And we are given the capacity to do this by the Spirit of God being placed within us, the truths of the Word of God, the work of conscience, the work of a renewed intellect, renewed will, and renewed affection. So all of these things are to change us. That's why Jesus is preaching the sermon. These are not somehow standards that are are for another age, standards that are only to demonstrate to us the fact that we cannot live up to perfection. These are standards that are graciously provided that we might please and honor the Lord as we serve him in the power of the Spirit according to the truth of the Word of God. Well, vows and truth were convicting, were they not? Well, now we're going to move to another topic, again, one that is related We're going to look at uh, the nature of our responses when people are unjust to us or when people demand of us, when they demand sacrifice of us. How will we respond? What will be our heart attitude in response to the demands of others, to an unjust world, to a difficult world, and to a demanding world? Well, drop your eyes, if you would, down to verse 38 where Jesus makes a transition again. And he says, you have heard that it was said, and he's going to deal with something that the Pharisees probably uh, taught that what the uh, a whole tradition that was built up around a particular Old Testament command, as has been the case all the way or through much of what we've seen already. So he said, you have heard that it was said, and they had, this is what was taught, this is related to, and, and this is what we'll see as a direct quote from the Old Testament, and yet we will also look at the fact that, that this Old Testament truth had again been perverted, and so Jesus will bring his uh, the truth to it. He will bring the proper understanding to the Old Testament principle that was twisted and perverted. So here's the principle. And as usual, it's kind of our, our standard outline here. We have the Pharisees teaching here on personal justice, beginning with the Old Testament principle that they started with. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth 
for a tooth. And this is a direct quote from several Old Testament passages uh, that relate this particular, out of the law, that relate this particular truth. Exodus 21, 22 says this, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge decides. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 29.19 If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted upon him. Again, this is taken from the Old Testament. Certainly these, these things are true because this is the law as God provided it through Moses. And really this is a reflection, it's sometimes called the of the principle of lex talionis. That is one of the most ancient law codes. And simply put, it reflects that and requires that punishment exactly match the crime. John MacArthur says the same idea is carried out in the expressions, like things like tit for tat or quid pro quo. The earliest record of Lex Talionis is in the Code of Hammurabi, the great Babylonian king. He lived a hundred years, a uh, hundred years or so before Moses. And it is likely, certainly it is, it is, it is absolutely assured that this principle was in wide use long before Hammurabi because essentially what the Bible is, is written for is to literally lay out all of the things that God had, had begun, the things that he had spoken, given to his people, passed down by word for, for many years, and then really codified, written for us as Moses writes the Pentateuch and says this is what God means, this is what God says. And all of the other things that are out there in the other societies, the myths, the, the echoes of law, the echoes of, of grace and love, that's really what the Bible is written to say, no, this is the real thing. This is what God really has to say about it. And so he brings to bear these truths, writes them out for us so that we understand that this is the word of God. This is how he commanded those in the Old Testament to deal with justice. And essentially what he's saying here is that the punishment must fit the crime. So often this is viewed as some kind of harsh, retri uh, retributive, and revengeful law, but it isn't at all. In fact, it's tremendously fair. It's tremendously just. See, most take this to be a law of revenge, but it is the furthest thing from it. The law was designed to make and provide just penalties and to remove the possibility of the powerful abusing the lowly with overly harsh responses. Additionally, this law was important to keep evil at bay by providing a strong, clear, consistent punishment of evil. Deuteronomy 19 says this, Deuteronomy 19, 18, the judges shall investigate thoroughly and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear it and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. For foot. So it's laid out originally in, Levit in Leviticus, in the original giving of the law. It's then reaffirmed in the second law, as it were, as uh, right before the children of Israel move into the, the, the promised land, Moses, or, yeah, Moses again tells them, look, this law is, is the reality for you, and it is necessary so that people will hear and they will not do evil things. And as I mentioned, additionally, so that they will not uh, take a greater punishment or provide a, a, a greater retribution than should be given according to the nature of the offense. Interesting illustration. You might remember Lamech uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis 4.23 early on. He says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. 
Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged, is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. What is he saying? I will take a greater retribution. I am great enough. I am powerful enough that when people harm me, I can give them back a greater punishment than is necessary for their crime. And of course, this is what the rich and powerful do. This is what those who get into positions of authority do. They, they exact a greater punishment because they feel like this is their right. So this entire law was designed so that there would be justice, so that there would be truth, so that there would be a proper punishment, and so that people would fear to sin. Again, MacArthur says the law of an eye for an eye was a just law because it matched punishment to offense. It was a merciful law because it limited the innate propensity of the human heart to seek retribution beyond what an offense deserved. And it was also a beneficent law because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. And of course, if we look into society today, what do we find? We find that very often the punishment does not match the crime in all different kinds of ways. And so it causes people either to abuse their power or to feel like they can get away with sin. I'm not going to get, I mean, that the punishment that I receive for the sin that I commit is slight enough that I'll just continue to do it. In fact, there are those who, who work the system in such a way that about the time they need some more money, they need to rest up from the abuses of living out in the world, they enter into the prison system. You read the books. And they figure out how to get in, and they take advantage of what's going on because the punishment does not match the crime. And then they get out and continue on doing the injustices that they have done. Some look at the punishments and go... Again, why would that keep me from doing anything? I'm sure I can get away with it. And even if I don't, the punishment I receive is not necessary. It's not enough to keep me from committing the crime. So God in his justice has set forth a law which reflects the nature of the human heart or how to deal with the nature of the human heart. Unfortunately, as with everything, number two here, we have the Pharisees' perversion. Again, Jesus does not deal with this directly, and yet he really essentially deals with it all the way through the book of Matthew, all the way through his life, where he points out the nature of the Pharisees' perversion of God's law. Again, the issue seems that they were externalizing this command. They had not left room then for grace to be given, for hurt or injustice to be borne with forgiveness by the injured party. They demanded that this law be carried out in their case and always got their pound of flesh, as it were. The Pharisees had taken this from a rule to govern societal justice to a rule governing all personal disputes, particularly those in which they had been wronged. Instead of properly acknowledging this law, they used it as a mandate for vengeance, as it has often been wrongly viewed throughout history. And just as I was working my way through the book of Matthew, I thought, well, let me, let me kind of read through and see if we can find this anywhere. Well, I mean, you can find it everywhere, but most specifically, you can find it in the Pharisees' own response to Jesus who was constantly affronting them, constantly bringing to bear the, you know, the nature of their sin, assaulting them, as it were. And how did they respond to him? Matthew 12, 13, he said to the man here, they're in the synagogue, and they're, they are trying to catch him in a sin, that of breaking the Sabbath, which was really only sinning against their own command, not sinning against the intent of the Sabbath. But he said to the man, and Jesus responds by saying to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Destroy him for healing someone? Yes, because it was a personal affront to them. So really, in their own minds, you see how this whole thing is, well, I, I, and, and he was breaking their law, the laws that they, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, had set up. And so they're going to bring about the penalty of killing him for breaking their, really, essentially, the laws that they themselves had set up. 
Matthew 15, 12, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? He's constantly preaching against them and their religiosity and their legalism. So they're offended by him. Matthew 21, 46, they uh, sought to, well, Matthew 21, 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And then verse 46, they sought to seize him. They feared him because the people considered him to be a prophet. Matthew 26, 3 the chief priests and elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Their very own application of Lex Talionis. He's done this to us. He's violated us in this way. So we are going to kill him. We will do whatever it can. Whatever we can. They, now, they blamed it on, they would have blamed it on blasphemy and religiosity and that he was breaking the law, but really what he was doing was affronting them. This is the way they lived, and this is the way they applied the law. This is the way they, they encouraged others to apply the law as well. Personal vindictiveness, revengeful response to wrong individually done. Sounds a lot like us, does it not? We have a tendency to want to respond to people when they harm us, when they hurt us, with an initial evil perhaps back towards them, or perhaps a revengeful response, something to do. We sometimes call it sarcasm. We'll, we'll, we'll get them back. We'll, we'll get a, a knife in the side because of what they did to us. This is very common for us. Obviously, Jesus understands this. And so as he brings his teaching to bear, it is something that we must pay careful attention to because it is the natural tendency of our hearts to try to respond in such a way that we receive satisfaction by exacting what we would consider to be a just penalty for sins against us, for the violations of our ego, the violations of our own character and nature, the violations of our own standards and our own rights. Pharisees were poster boys for this, but certainly we would fit alongside the poster as well. So let's look at Jesus, what Jesus has to say in his teachings on personal justice and personal rights. He says, but in contrast to the Pharisees' external wooden understanding of this law, I say to you, again, Jesus is going to bring the fulfillment of, the explanation of, the fleshing out of the truths of Old Testament law. Jesus here is not really radically unique from the Old Testament. There are many passages which speak of not seeking revenge, bearing with the hurts of others against you, and not desiring justice to be done to your enemy. Jesus, however, as we will see, does radicalize this for those in the kingdom by extending the nature of sacrifice in the face of harm and difficulty. But just a couple of passages that indicate that already the idea that we do not respond to personal hurt with revenge or vindictiveness, that's clearly it out there, Leviticus 19:18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall live, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. The law of love trumps this. The law of love does not over, it does not overthrow the law of lex talionis eye for an eye, but enables it to be properly enacted within the justice system and then personally in the best possible way. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Doesn't that sound like the, the law we just read, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Yet again, there's an understanding of it in a personal way with personal affront that says, I will wait upon the Lord. I will not seek to enact my own justice even when I have been justly or I've been truly harmed. But that's in the, found in the Old Testament as well. Uh, thus, uh, do not say, thus I shall say, or thus I, I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. And a very interesting illustration of this. You might remember a man named Nabal or Nabal. Uh, his name actually means fool. And he's found in the Old Testament, he's found opposing David. 
David is in his kind of interim period where he's been anointed king and yet can't take the kingship because Saul is still on the throne. He's been hiding out in the, in the, in the wilderness and he's been protecting the men of Nabal. He's been helping them out as they uh, fight against enemies and robbers. He's protected his property. And then comes a time when Nabal's gonna, uh, he has his harvest and he's going to slaughter his sheep and reap all the benefits of this. And David sends to him and says, well, why don't, why don't you give me a little, little, little stake in this? We'll come down and you can share a little bit with us because we've been protecting and caring for your, uh, all of your stuff and your people, your, your herdsmen. And you remember how Nabal responded. He said, uh, there's men breaking away from their master everywhere. Who are you that I should pay any attention to you? If I give you one, you know, if you get one, one slab of beef from my, from my cows or, or a bit of, of, I don't even know what you call sheep meat. But anyway, uh, if, if you get any, any amount of meat from my animals, uh, this, this will never happen. And so David straps on his sword and says, let's go take revenge. I have been personally affronted. I have been personally assaulted. Here I was taking care. I was providing for him when he didn't deserve it. And now he is, he's affronting me. He is, he is violating my rights to, for, for the protection that I provided. And as he gets on his way, Nabal's wife, Abigail, hears about this. And quickly she puts a bunch of food together and things, a, a gift for him. And she comes. And in 1 Samuel 25, 31, she says, she says, and this will not cause grief or troubled heart to my Lord. She urges him not to take his own revenge. By having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. Here's the issue. In one sense, David had right to this. He, he provided, taking care of Nabal. But she says, don't do this. He says, when the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant, First Samuel 25, uh, 38. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who restrained me from harming you. Very interesting that he gives that to the Lord. He says, Abigail, your restraining me really was God's work to protect me from taking my own revenge. Nevertheless, as the Lord of God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, meet me, surely they would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. David was serious. And yet, we, are, we already see, though, he did not have the right to take his own revenge. He was not the king at that point. He, was not, he didn't have any legal right to come and exact a punishment or a, or a payment, even when there had been harm done to him. Now, as we look at the text, Jesus really gives four examples of how we deal with personal sacrifice or dealing with personal loss, personal affront, or a, a demand to, to give of our, pers- of our things, to, to make a sacrifice to another. And it's hard to know from the grammar exactly how best to break these up. So look at him again in the text. He starts with verse 39. I say to you, don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him. 40, another example, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. And then 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. I think it's best to see each of these as different examples, really moving from the worst to the, to, to the least, from the, from the greater to the less. That is the first one. We have an evil man who's done harm. We move our way towards what we will see in the next couple of weeks is a legal situation in which someone is suing you next to a governmental, an issue of of governmental uh, oppression where the Roman soldiers would say, here, carry my pack. They had the legal right to tell someone to carry my pack for a mile. 
to really impress them into service, to force them to serve them. And finally, all the way out to the most general and least harmful example, and yet one that requires personal sacrifice in response to a, a request, verse 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So they seem to move in a progression from most harmful to least harmful, from that which would, would have the greatest personal injury to that which cause, simply asks for sacrifice. So this morning, we're just going to deal with the first one. The issue, perhaps in, in many ways the most difficult issue here, of someone, an evil person, bringing some sort of harm. Right, so that's number one here, dealing with harm from evil people. How are we going to do this? When an evil person has done something against us, how will we respond? Will we respond as the Pharisees would have said, look, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've been harmed by someone, you need to get back from them. It's an issue of, of this issue of justice. Your rights have been violated. And so you will, you will respond to them in, in just way or in right way they, as they have responded to you. But here's what Jesus said. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now, right away, we're just slammed back in our seats. Now, wait a minute. That's not right. If someone is evil, we are to resist him. Jesus, what are you saying? I hope you look at it and say that because it ought to bring that kind of response. Wait a minute. I mean, this is an evil world. We're just going to let evil people trample over us? Evil people trample through the church? Evil people trample on unsuspecting and, and harmless people? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. And yet, if you just read the bare statement, it sure sounds like that, doesn't it? And unfortunately, down throughout the ages, people have, have taken this in all different directions, a lot of them very harmful, teaching things that kind of bind people into certain responses that Jesus never intended. Why? Because Jesus speaks with a, a, a bold, brash directness and does not flesh out purposely, does not flesh out all of the, all of the various instances of how these things are to be lived out because he's assaulting a particular heart attitude of selfishness, of a desire to stand up for our own rights, of vengeance, of trying to get back at others, of living all of our lives as though we are at the center of the universe, which again is how the Pharisees lived and really is how we all live apart from Christ. And so we assault each of these things with very bold, direct, to some degree, hyperbolic statements. That is to combat the pervasive legalism of the Pharisees and really of every heart as it comes into the world. He's not setting new laws for every situation or national or personal justice. He is fleshing out the heart attitude of a kingdom citizen in relationship to personal affront and sacrificial living. And therefore, he says, do not resist an evil person. Craig Blomberg says, verses 39 to 42 compromise what he calls a focal instance of non-retaliation. That is, specific extreme commands to attract our attention to a key ethical theme that must still be variously applied as circumstances change and as the principles of the Word of God dictate. So we're going to have to look into God's Word to see how we can understand what Jesus says. However, D.A. Carson brings us also an important reminder. The illustrations must not be diluted by endless equivocations. The only limit to Jesus' bold statement here and the believer's response in these situations is what love and the Scriptures impose. So how are we going to understand then what Jesus says? How are we going to figure out what it means to not resist an evil person? And in fact, to turn our cheek when it, our right, our, when our right cheek is slapped, to turn the left cheek. Well, we're going to do it through a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. Because the words of Jesus are often hard to understand, it is, it is right, in light of sound exposition, to use the context of Old and New Testaments to help us understand his cryptic statements. 
We must be careful never to allow this approach to reduce the force and content of Jesus' teaching, but we must allow this to inform our application of his commands. In light of this, it's imperative that we look to the epistles as a kind of commentary on the teaching of Christ. All the apostles received their gospel directly from Jesus. The writing was inspired by the Spirit of God, the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who brought to mind what Jesus said and allowed them to understand it and communicate it to the church. So when we have a particular difficult, particularly difficult statement of Jesus, we're going to look to what else he said in the Gospels, and we're going to spread that out and look to really the divine commentary on what Jesus said in the Gospels, which is what? The epistles. And so we look there to determine... What are the principles that Jesus is bringing to bear in his bold, authoritative teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? We've already looked at the Old Testament to see the reality of the principle there and also the reality of the fact that we're not always to take, we're not to take our own revenge. But how, how will this be fleshed out in the New Testament? And John 16, 13 he certainly gives us warrant for this, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, Jesus speaking to the apostles. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose, disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I says he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So the apostles were taking, were, were the Spirit was bringing to mind the things that Jesus said. And then they were speaking those things, preaching those things as the explanation, as the Spirit brought illumination to them. And then he wrote those things down. First, let's understand that what cannot be meant here is that no evil and no evil man is ever to be resisted. This is absolutely impossible. Now, of course, that should jump to your mind as something that makes sense. And yet again, there are some who have somehow begun to, begun to teach that you just let evil men do whatever they want. You just let them plow right over you. That's the idea. And in the church, it works the same. Hey, we're, we're members of the kingdom. We're all believers here. So we don't deal with evil in harsh manners. We just kind of let it go. If that's the more spiritual response, and even working this kind of into, into social justice situations, where it's always the more spiritual response, simply to let evil men have their way. That that's what Jesus was actually commanding. If everybody did that, then we would all be fine. The Bible does not teach that, and we wouldn't all be fine. If we just simply let evil men do what they desire to do, that that somehow was the more spiritual response. A couple of thoughts from Scripture here that will help us. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, but resist him. And by the way, that's the evil one. Right? But certainly it is those who are, who are representatives of the evil one as well. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Ephesians 6.13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The example of Jesus himself in Matthew 21.12, Jesus entered the temple. He sees those who are buying and selling in the temple and object evil going on there. And what does he do? Oh, don't do that sits down in the temple and goes, I really wish you wouldn't do that here. It's not, it's not a nice thing for you to do. No. What does he say? Or what does he do? Matthew 21, 12, he entered the temple. He drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Galatians 2, 11, here's the example of Paul. Paul comes to Antioch. He finds Peter there really abandoning some of the tenets of the gospel and starting to go to separate himself out from the Gentiles and eat only with the Jews. When Peter came to Antioch, he said, Oh, Peter, that's just not a good thing, but it's really okay, because I'm not going to oppose you. We're not supposed to resist. If there's wrong things going on, we don't resist that. No, in Galatians 2.11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. How about the example of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5.13? You have a man committing evil acts with probably his stepmother, an incestuous relationship. 
And it's very interesting. It, is, it seems very possible to me that the Corinthians were misunderstanding Jesus at this very point. And so you have this man who's committing this abject evil in the community of the saints, and it almost appears that they are saying, well, you don't resist an evil person. This is the kingdom of God. This is the church. So you just let that go on. And they were actually rejoicing in what seems to be their liberality that they weren't dealing with sin. And Paul comes along and says what? 1 Corinthians 5, 13. Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You do not allow this wicked man to plow his evil and do whatever he desires to do within the church. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.